This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and congratulations, you found us. Perhaps just in time. Come on in out of the dark and the wind and the cold, grab a stool by the fire and warm yourself. You are among friends. You're listening to this radio program, which means you weren't able to attend my live event in Oshawa tonight, Follow the Truth 2. It was uh, an amazing time. We had a great turnout. We had people who came up uh, from Los Angeles and New York. Uh, one person flew in from England just for the conference. If you missed it, don't worry. I'm going to be doing more, and the next one will likely be in Toronto, uh, one in the summer maybe, perhaps another one again in the fall. Just check out the website, followthetruth.tv, and we hope to see you there next time. My story producer, Albert Vinzel, has posted some stories in the highlight carousel at richardserrett.com that I'm sure you'll find interesting, including a blog posting reposted by zerohedge.com that is, quite frankly, kind of chilling. It's called Signs That the Elites Are Feverishly Preparing for Something Big. What in the world are the elite up to? In recent days, we've learned that the New York Fed is moving a lot of operations to Chicago because of concerns about what a natural disaster could do. The U.S. federal government is apparently buying 62 million rounds of ammunition, commonly used in AR-15 semiotic rifles, for training purposes. And NORAD is moving back into Cheyenne Mountain because it's EMP-hardened. In addition, addition, government authorities have scheduled a whole host of unusual training exercises all over the nation. So, are the elite doing all of this in order to prepare for something really big? Or should we just chalk all all this uh, strange activity to rampant government paranoia? That's just one of the stories you'll find posted in the Highlights Carousel at richardserrett.com. And while you're there, make sure to sign up as a member. It's that blue button, the members area blue button just to the left. And once you're a member, and it's quick and easy and free, you'll have easy access to past shows. You can listen to past episodes of The Conspiracy Show dating back to July 2012. Thanks to Eric the Intern for his great work on the website. On tonight's program... Lots of headlines the last couple of weeks regarding medical marijuana and the proliferation of medical marijuana clinics and dispensaries in Vancouver. They now have 80, 80 dispensaries. That's right, 8-0. One commentator estimated Vancouver now has more medical marijuana dispensaries than it has Tim Hortons outlets. Calgary is getting its first medical marijuana clinic this month. Here in Toronto, we have about a half dozen dispensaries and more clinics opening up across the city. The number of Canadians authorized to use medical marijuana has been skyrocketing in 2002, a year after the government first permitted access through Health Canada regulation. 500 patients said register. Today, get this, there are more than 50,000. 
50,000 medical marijuana patients registered. So I thought we'd spend the next 45 minutes or so discussing medical marijuana, the new federal regulations, and took a look, take a look inside and see how it all works. Ronan Levy is the entrepreneur behind Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas RX, the country's leading medical marijuana specialized clinics and counseling services. Hey, Ronan, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm very well. Excellent. Let's uh, first clarify the uh, the new rules regarding medical marijuana. It used to be uh, that, that patients were growing their own. What's yeah. changed? What's changed is two big pieces, actually. So the first one is under the old regime, which was known as the MMAR. Uh, patients who were prescribed medical marijuana could either grow it for themselves uh, or they could appoint someone to grow it for them. And so you had people growing for themselves or had a whole series of small producers. And generally speaking, those small producers were not terribly well regulated. Uh, and the other piece under the old regime was that to get prescribed, you actually had to go to Health Canada to get permission and to get authorization to possess medical cannabis. Under the new regulations, two big changes. One is Health Canada is no longer involved in the process of prescribing medical cannabis. It's all with your doctor. So any doctor in Canada who feels comfortable doing so is actually perfectly legally capable of prescribing medical cannabis. Um, and the second big shift is that production is now uh, been diverted to uh, a series of licensed producers. So basically, the government has gone ahead and created criteria and very strict regulation of who can be authorized to uh, grow medical cannabis. Uh, and so far, there's been about 20 licensed producers who have been authorized, but there's been thousands of people who have applied to become these licensed producers. But you need a lot of money, uh, a very secure facility, and, uh, you know, very close adherence to some very strict regulations and procedures in terms of how you grow, uh, virus count, mold, all that kind of stuff to make sure that the end product, the medical cannabis that's being delivered, is as close to pharmaceutical grade as you can get when you're just actually growing a plant. You, you're trained as a, as a lawyer, and now you're uh, an entrepreneur. You've, you've had a number of interesting startup businesses. Why, why medical marijuana? Were you, were you an activist first, or did you just you see this as a, as a, as a, a niche, uh, uh, as a business venture? Yeah, I'm. I'm I'm definitely not an activist. Uh, I am fairly libertarian in my views when it comes to drug use and recreational drug use and respect people's to make people's decisions for themselves and treat everyone as ad, an adult. So uh, I'm okay with it as a concept and people using either cannabis recreationally or medically. Um, but my interest in it was partly purely entrepreneurial, just seeing a great opportunity to build a business. But as a, as a personal niche, um, I've really worked in industries that tend to have reputations that tend to be sleazy or th places that people don't necessarily want to associate with. And I, what I like to do is go in, 
to these industries and, and bring a level of integrity and authenticity because a lot of these industries actually have a lot of value and can help a lot of people. And, and right now in medical cannabis, you have the situation where it can, it has the power to help, you know, th- hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians relieve suffering from chronic pain or a number of other conditions. But there's still a perception that if you use medical cannabis, you're just using it as a front for, you know, legal recreational use. That's not really medical. Um, and I want to change that perception. I want help to help people understand that this, this is real medicine. Uh, it can help a lot of people live much better lives and is a better alternative, particularly when it comes to chronic pain, uh, than the opiates that are out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of damage caused to society by people who get addicted to Percocets and other opioids. And cannabis provides a very natural you know, relatively safe. It's not perfectly safe, but a relatively safe alternative that can pr- provide a lot of pain relief and, and help people who are suffering. Uh, so um, let's start talking about uh, Canadian cannabis clinics, and then we'll sure. talk about Canvas uh, RX. Cannab- Canadian cannabis clinics, let's start with that. Yeah. So Canadian Cannabis Clinics is a a series of medical clinics. We now have four in operation, uh, one in St. Catharines, one in London, one in Ottawa, and one in Etobicoke, just outside of Toronto. Uh, And they are medical clinics. They, when you walk into it, it looks like any other doctor's office that you'd walk into in Canada. It's staffed by doctors and medical office assistants. And what we do is we specialize in assessing people for uh, prescription for medical cannabis. Uh, Under the guidelines from the Canadian uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons Ontario and other colleges across Ontario, the people who should be receiving prescriptions um, for medical cannabis, it's a fairly narrow subset of people and they want the people who have tried conventional treatments. So if you suffer from chronic pain uh, or glaucoma, they want to see that you've gone through uh, and tried conventional treatments, i.e. what you would normally expect your GP to prescribe for you. Uh, and if that doesn't work, then you should, that's when you start to consider medical cannabis as an option. But even then, you know, there's a number of other things that may indicate that you're not actually uh, a suitable candidate for medical cannabis. And that's what our doctors do. So you come in, you check in to the doctor's office just like any other doctor's office and, and then our doctors will will assess you. I mean, we'll do basic basic physical in terms of taking your, your temperature and your blood pressure and all that kind of stuff to make sure that you actually have the physical strength and stamina to actually be a cannabis patient. Uh, and then, you know, there's another, an, another a whole other series of, you know, questions and, and things you've got to go through to see if you actually qualify. For example, if you have a history of addiction, you're probably not going to be prescribed medical cannabis for the obvious reasons. But but that's essentially it. By the time you finish seeing our doctor, if you're a, a suitable candidate, they will prescribe medical cannabis for you. And, and it's just like a doctor's office in every other respect like that. So do you uh, then sort of act as a liaison between one of the licensed growers or uh, producers of medical marijuana and the patient? Yeah, so Canadian Cannabis Clinics doesn't do that specifically. We actually have a service that you mentioned before, Canvas RX, that does that. So after you see the doctor, if you are prescribed, uh, then you sit down and talk to one of our cannabis counselors. And I should note that all of these services are provided for free. So when you see a doctor, uh, it's covered by OHIP in Ontario, so you don't pay anything. When you sit down with our cannabis counselors, it's provided for free, so you don't do you don't have to pay anything either. 
either. Uh, and our cannabis counselor will essentially do a lot of the stuff that you would expect to have a doctor provide to you, but doesn't necessarily make sense for a doctor to spend that time with you because they can serve their time better seeing other patients. So the cannabis counselor will teach you about medical cannabis. They'll teach you about how to consume it. So obviously we don't recommend that people smoke it um, because of concerns around cancer and and your lungs. Uh, So we suggest that people vaporize it, which heats the cannabis up to a temperature below the combustion point, but at a high enough point where the active chemicals, THC and CBD, and, and there's a whole bunch of others, but those are the two primary ones, get released and can actually be inhaled so you can consume it. Um, if you're not a candidate for smoking, we'll, we'll teach you and how, or not a candidate for vaporizing. So if you have emphysema or something along those lines, we'll teach you how to you know, make teas with it, make butters with it. So you, you walk out of the appointment well-informed uh, about what you can do with it. We also help you select a strain. So there's seven licensed producers in Canada who are selling to patients right now and all of them have between five and 20 different strains that they're selling so there are a lot of let me just uh, jump in Ronan excuse me I do want to pursue that I want to I want to talk about how you match strains to particular symptoms and and diseases and so forth we'll do that when we come back Ronan Levy is an entrepreneur and uh, one of the co-founders of Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas RX the country's leading medical marijuana specialized clinic and counseling service back with more of the conspiracy show right here. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio AM 740. We are back. Ronan Levy is uh, with us. Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas RX. Again, we're talking medical marijuana. Uh, you, you mentioned the, um, was it 17 licensed uh, marijuana, medical marijuana producers across Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm fascinated about the the, the various strains uh, of of medical marijuana or the cannabis plant and how you are matching those uh, to to a patient's particular symptom. Tell me more about that. Sure. So what we do right now is if a a patient is prescribed, they sit down with one of our cannabis counselors and the cannabis counselor will help them understand the options that are available amongst uh, across Canada. So there's all the different producers with all their different strains. And, you know, right now, because it's not a pharmaceutical product, it doesn't go through the double blind placebo testing that all pharmaceuticals go through. There's a a lack of information uh, in terms of what strains are, are best suited for you. And so what our counselors do, they take the available information. Many of our counselors actually are are medical marijuana patients themselves, so they're extremely familiar with it. And we present the options. Um, You know, there's different ways to categorize medical cannabis. You can look at whether it's sativa or indica. You can look at the THC percentage and the CBD percentage. Uh, the producers have different characteristics. So some are organic, some are more, you know, tried to create in a, in a pharmaceutical kind of environment and all that kind of stuff. And we help patients uh, really drill down to figure out what may be best suited for them because it's not like a pharmaceutical product where we can say definitively that this this strain of medical cannabis will treat your glaucoma well. It's a, a little bit of a, you know, a test and response. Try these few strains, which other patients have used very well and found good relief using these strains. And if it works for you, great, we'll keep you on it. And if it doesn't, well, the next time you come back in three months to get renew your prescription, we'll, we'll try out some new ones to find the ones that work for you uh, best. E- even though right now there isn't a, a lot of science that exists for each individual strain within Canada. I would guess it would be largely anecdotal at this point. It's exactly largely anecdotal. 
Um, you know, there, there is a good amount of evidence to say that, broadly speaking, cannabis is effective as an effective therapeutic option for pain or, or glaucoma generally speaking as cannabis, but for specific strains, it's it's still a little bit unknown. And so every time a patient comes back to us uh, and sees our doctor again, we actually ask them to complete a, a very extensive survey to find out if it worked, find out if side effects and, you know, any other information that we think may be relevant to really make the selection less of an art and more of a science. And so, you know, we've helped thousands of patients now, and now we have a very significant database to say, okay, we've seen 60 patients who have come in for glaucoma, uh, and we've found that 58 have found this particular strain uh, highly effective. And so we, we're trying to build that 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 database of information that can really start to drill down. So we know if you're coming in, you know, if you're a single, uh, a white male, you know, who's 50 years old and coming in for this, we can say like, okay, white males that we've seen of this age group have found this strain very effective. And so it's not perfect science, but it's getting a lot better uh, than the anecdotal information that's typically been relied on to this point. And, and uh, you know, granted, you're not a, a botanist or a horticulturalist, but with, uh, how are these strains being developed? I mean, uh, can you can you give me a, a sort of a glimpse into that whole process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, cannabis is a is a plant, and so there's many different strains that have existed all around the world for you know millions of years, and and some of them have been cultivated for the black market over the last hundred years or so, and so a lot of the producers have started with the the black market strains the you know if you're at all familiar with the marijuana black market you'll recognize names like OG Kush and AK47 and all that kind of stuff and so they took those strains and now you know applying modern growing techniques techniques and hybridization they're taking those strains and trying to create new strains that have different profiles based on on their THC on their CBD um, their terpene profiles in Canada the producers aren't really required to talk about the terpenes, but the terpenes are the hundreds of other chemicals that give a lot of flavor. And I, I don't just mean that as in taste, but in terms of the experience that one has with medical cannabis. Right. Cause it's uh, not all about the THC, right? I mean, that's the act. That's those are the uh, that's what gives gets you the high, correct? Yeah, THC is what gives you the euphoric high, um, and that's what most recreational people, uh, recreational users are looking for. CBD is is a, being hailed a little bit, probably overly so, as, as a bit of a cure-all because it has anti-inflammatory properties, has anti-pain properties, it has anti-nausea properties, and it does it all without getting you high. So right. there are some strains in Canada that have virtually very little or virtually no THC and between, you know, 8 and 14% CBD, so you can actually smoke it or, or vaporize it or consume it uh, and not get high, but still get the benefits of it, which is great for you know professionals out there who can't go to work high because it actually impa- impairs their judgment, but they want the benefits and, and the relief that comes from medical cannabis any, uh, regardless. And so there's a lot of effort being put into focusing on CBD, extracting CBD, even though uh, in Canada extracts are still technically illegal. We expect that they're going to be made legal somehow or in some way, and particularly in the U.S., uh, CBD is is a big focus right now in terms of extracts because you get a lot of the benefits without some of the – some people like the side effect of getting high, but if that's not what you're interested in, then you can actually get the benefit of medical cannabis without the high. Now, if, uh, let's say, for example, you're um, under, undergoing uh, chemotherapy, yep. 
which you know can obviously do a number on someone's appetite, etc. Uh, is uh, first of all uh, someone who is undergoing chemotherapy would they be a candidate uh, for medical marijuana? Absolutely. Uh, coincidentally, my mom was going through chemotherapy about four or five months ago, and, and she was a successful candidate for medical marijuana. And, and so absolutely, uh, obviously, again, particularly with cancer, uh, we're, we're very cautious against people smoking it. So we strongly encourage that they vaporize it or find a different way to consume it. But it, uh, it can be extremely beneficial. It doesn't cure cancer, although there's some people out there who suggest it does. But scientifically, at least as far as we know it does not so but it does it does provide a lot of pain relief it does stimulate the your appetite so you can actually eat which keeps your strength up and and it just helps you get through what is you know what now I've witnessed firsthand is a truly awful awful experience going through chemo chemotherapy and is is it the THC that is the appetite stimulant in that case uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head. I think both THC and CBD have an impact on that, but I, I can't say for certain. Uh, and what are some of the other, um, uh, I think you mentioned glaucoma, or, or maybe not, but I, I would imagine yep. glaucoma is certainly uh, something that can be uh, treated with, with uh, medical marijuana. What are some of the other uh, ailments? Yeah, so the patients coming through our clinic, uh, pain in any number of forms is definitely the most common. About 60% of our patients come in for chronic pain, arthritis, whether it's rheumatoid or osteo or inflammatory. That's by far the most common. Then uh, anxiety and depression are very common uh, uh, conditions that people come in looking for. Medical cannabis for uh, MS and the spasticity associated with it, chemotherapy and cancer, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, if I didn't mention that one already. Uh, epilepsy is a, another common one we have seen, not not too many, but we've definitely seen some uh, pediatric patients whose parents have come in because their kids uh, suffer you know, seizures hundreds of times a day. We actually have one patient um, who came in, her mom and him came in. He suffered hundreds of seizures a day, and this was back in October, and ever since being prescribed medical cannabis, I think he's had maybe one seizure since and it's really given him a quality of life that he never had before. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is obviously very controversial whenever you talk about, uh, you know, administering um, marijuana to to children. I saw a, um, I I believe it was 2020 on on ABC and a a couple in New Jersey uh, where until very recently they uh, were not permitting I'm not sure exactly what the, the holdup was, but uh, Governor Chris Christie was was not going to pass into law this a particular medical marijuana bill. So this couple was forced to take their child to Colorado and locate there permanently uh, because their child was having multiple, multiple epileptic, epileptic seizures, uh, as you say, every day. And uh, the in, in this particular case, again, it's it's anecdotal, but. The turnaround was absolutely the transformation remarkable. What can you tell me about the the science or the the present research in terms of uh, medical marijuana treating uh, epilepsy in children? Um, truthfully, the science is is kind of exactly where all other science is in respect of cannabis. Uh, there's a lot of there is basic elemental science that says cannabis can be an effective treatment uh, for seizure disorders like epilepsy. Uh, in terms of drilling down to say, I, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if the specific story you're talking about is the Charlotte's Web story that people seem to be Yes, yes, with that's the days. plant. That's the actual plant that uh, has been developed. 
Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, there's just, there, there are not nearly enough controlled science, scientific studies to actually say effectively uh, in a scientific manner that this is an effective treatment for epilepsy. That being said, there seems to be a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, out there to suggest it, it may be a very effective option. And, you know, it, anytime you're administering any drugs, whether it's a pharmaceutical or if it's medical cannabis, there's always risk associated with administering drugs to children. Uh, I think the perception around cannabis, you know, in light of its history over the last hundred years, makes this particularly shocking. It, it sounds like feeding your kid vodka or something along those lines. It sounds like something you don't do, uh, except it, it is much different. And, and that's exactly what we're trying to do at Canadian Cannabis Clinics is trying to change the perception that this is in fact medicine and it's good medicine and, and it's natural. And as with every medicine, it has risks associated with it, particularly in pediatric uh, patients. I mean, there's science out there that seems to suggest that people who use cannabis on a frequent basis under the age of 25 really increase their likelihood of having uh, psychological disorders later in life, schizophrenia in particular. And so it's it's definitely a, an option of last resort. It's not something you want to try at first because there are potential consequences associated with it. That being said, if you're without option, it's, it's definitely a anecdotally at least an effective choice for some people and so I understand why there's outrage when people administer marijuana to their children I think that outrage is in part fueled by perceptions the still negative stereotypes around I agree you know, where is the, where is the outrage uh, you know how many hundreds of thousands of people die every year from prescription drugs absolutely uh, and and they're and they're taking them properly in some cases mm -hmm. where is it where is the outrage there uh, it, it seems to me there's just the, the hypocrisy here uh, you know the double standard applying it to marijuana when uh, you know how many people have died uh, you know from from taking the occasional toke uh, it's 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 really um, and, and it's interesting how it's come full circle, isn't it? Because there was a time when you would find a vial of cannabis oil in just about every doctor's little black bag. Mm -hmm. When did that change? Uh, I think it changed in the 1920s or 30s, right around the same time as as prohibition came and went. Uh, there was a, a big push towards eliminating any vices in society. Uh, who knows why the prohibition on alcohol actually, you know, it, it probably is because alcohol is extremely much more addictive um, than than uh, cannabis. And so when you took that away, you had a lot of very angry people who uh, wanted to push through prohibition, whereas, you know, the consequence of alcohol consumption tend to be addiction and much more aggressive behavior. When it comes to cannabis, it doesn't create aggressive behavior typically. It can. It's not 100%. But, uh, you know, the general result is people are fairly relaxed and fairly content. And so you didn't have the same level of outrage because you didn't have the addiction. You didn't have that push. You also didn't have that societal integration um, when, when it was uh, criminalized back, I think it was in the 30s. And then, you know, the government did a very good job. You still see it today, uh, creating this perception of reefer madness. And even though, you know, in polls across Canada and the U.S., most people are open to legalization, at least with respect to medical marijuana, even possibly recreational. There's still a very insidious perception that people who use it for medical purposes are 
are just recreational drug users looking for a legal way to get access to it. And, and it's so unfair. Uh, and it's, it's unfair to paint them with the blush of, of the typical stoner of, you know, a lazy person who sits in their basement eating Doritos. You know, one of the things we're trying to do right now is really put a, a real face on this and say, like, no, this is your neighbor. This is your friend. There's lots of people out there who are very successful, very professional, and who use medical cannabis to help them, you know, get through life because they're suffering from some, from some chronic condition. Well, as state by state, uh, you know, medical marijuana uh, legalization comes on board, the, the tide is definitely turning, and uh, it's just a matter of time. Ronan uh, Stapot will come back and uh, talk some more. Ron, uh, Ronan Levy is the co-founder of Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas Rx, the country's leading medical marijuana specialized clinic and counseling service. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. On Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. We're uh, talking with Ronan Levy, Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas RX. Now, Canvas RX, uh, tell me about the database. Uh, uh, you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but uh, what exactly, uh, what is this database all about? Sure. So when a patient comes through and sits down with their counselor the first time, we help them select a strain. When they come back a few months later, typically our prescriptions are written for about three months, um, just in good medical practice to be prudent and making sure it's working and it's not being diverted. Uh, when a patient comes back, they sit down and they sit down with their cannabis counselor. <coughs> Excuse me. And they're asked to complete, as part of the process, a fairly extensive survey. Uh, and the survey makes note of what they were prescribed, um, what strains they used, how much of the strain they've used, because very often, you know, anytime you get a prescription, sometimes you'll get 50 pills, but only end up taking 30. And, and that happens here as well. Uh, cannabis is... Unlike a pharmaceutical, you use it when you need it to address your symptom. And so sometimes that involves taking less than, than more. Um, and so you fill out how much you've used, the strains, the impact, was it effective, were there side effects? And it's a, it's a lengthy survey that takes probably about 15 or 20 minutes to complete. And we take all of that information and, and we're compiling it into a database. And, and really the goal is to bring the level of science uh, up to a much higher level than it's been uh, with so many strains, it's, it's really difficult to get that level of granularity uh, into the science. But because we see so many patients <clears throat> who come back frequently, we actually get a lot, a lot of opportunity to collect this database across all licensed producers. While, uh, while each licensed producer is doing their own science on their own strains, you know, they only have five of the couple hundred that are now available in Canada. So we get a much broader perspective. And, and we work with a medical advisor, uh, a group of medical advisors, um, one of whom is associated with the University Health Network in Toronto and St. Mike's Hospital. Uh, and he's taking in this database and really trying to put it through rigorous science. So we're going to be releasing a, a preliminary survey of the results of these these. Uh, uh, releasing a preliminary study of the results of these surveys in the next month or so, talking about 
who the average user is, what strains are working for what kind of thing, and at a very high level. But we also have a, an application before the Research Ethics Board at the University of Toronto uh, to go much further. Uh, so starting to get into double-blind placebo testing and really elevate the level of science because one of the big restrictions are around medical cannabis is doctors aren't willing to prescribe simply because they don't know enough and because the science isn't there. Uh, we're trying to provide the education. The education, I think, is coming a lot faster than the science, but the science is starting to catch up, and, and we really want to be on the forefront of that. Those studies are expensive. They are. So, they uh, I mean, isn't that, uh, isn't that kind of the conundrum? Because when we're talking about big pharma, obviously, you know, there are billions and billions of dollars to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with medical marijuana, um, it's not at that level, obviously, yet. So, and how are these, how are these f- studies to be funded then? You know, that, that's a good question. Right now, we're doing what we can with the resources we have. Uh, there are a lot of patients who are using it. I am quite confident that <laughs> medical cannabis is one of the fastest growing prescription medications in Canada. Um, and so, you know, we're, there's more and more data out there. Uh, and, and even though we're not necessarily doing double-blind placebo testing with it, we are getting a lot of feedback that we can, you know, show on a, a statistically significant basis its efficacy. Um, it's, it's not quite the same, but it's, it's better than, than nothing, that's for sure. And uh, did, you, did you say that there are something like 200 different um, strains now of medical marijuana? Yeah, um, each licensed producer is getting their strains as as their own brand. So, you know, one one producer may have an OG Kush that's branded X and another producer may have an OG Kush that's branded Y. And so you know, on one level they're branded differently, so we call them separate strains. On another level, they're the same strain because they're both premised on OG Kush. But on a deeper level, they're actually fundamentally different. It's it's <laughs> in some respects kind of like wine that if you grow uh, a grape in one kind of environment uh, and produce a wine from it, you're going to get a type of wine. But if you take that exact same grape and move it across the country and then grow it in a different environment, you're going to have a very different wine that results. And so you have producers, even though they're producing the same street name strain, the actual product is going to be very different. Different. So yeah, we're we're you know in the neighborhood of 200 strains in Canada, even though some of them may have come from the same varietal varietal, so to speak. Uh, they are actually very different. All right, uh, Ronan, we'll take one final time out, come back. A few more questions remain. Ronan Levy, Can- Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Cannabis Rx. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Uh, Ronan, uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, give me a profile of some of these uh, the, these producers, 17 of them nationwide. First of all, uh, I don't know, just sort of intuitively, I'm thinking many of them may be located out on the uh, the left coast in British Columbia. 
Yep, there are some out in British Columbia. Uh, the majority are actually in Ontario. Uh, there's one in, in Manitoba right now, um, and uh, I think one or two licensed in, in the East Coast. So Organogram is in Nova Scotia. In Ontario, you have licensed producers like Afria, uh, Tweed is Ontario, Bedrican, Medrelief, um, a few others, and on and, and BC, Tilray is the, the most well-known um, but there's also another one called Broken Coast Cannabis and uh, Canamed, uh, which is in the Midwest, is uh, used to be under the MMAR. There was one one grower authorized by Health Canada uh, that was called Prairie Plant Systems, and they became Canamed. So you have the full spectrum. I mean, some of them are, are almost like mom and pop shops run by families. Others are very sophisticated organizations that have used the public markets to raise a whole bunch of capital. Uh, to build out their facilities, and and so you have the full spectrum of different business operators within within the community. I would imagine it would be if one were interested in getting involved in in cultivating medical marijuana, it would be a regulatory nightmare. How does one begin? Yeah, uh, it is a regulatory nightmare. It costs hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, truly to get into it. Uh, even though there's 17 applicants who have been authorized, there's uh, there were something like a 1,000 applications received. And where do you start? I mean, it starts by downloading the application form and finding out what the requirements are. There are strict regulatory requirements in terms of who you are, so the principals in the business have to go through a series of, of um, approvals, RCMP approval and all that kind of stuff to ensure that they don't have criminal backgrounds. Uh, you need to have qualified, not qualified, uh, but you need to have a, a, a grower who's going to be doing the growing for you. You need to have a facility identified. Uh, many people build the facility before the facility is actually authorized. It costs millions of dollars to build that facility because it has to be of a certain scale if you're actually going to make this a business. But then again, you also need very strict uh, requirements in terms of having a safe where you store the medical cannabis in terms of having cameras and security systems to keep everything safe. Uh, truthfully, the regulations have changed since last year when they first came out with them because as more growers get authorized, you know, Health Canada learns and adapts and changes the rules and, and usually makes them more cumbersome to make sure everything's secure. Uh, and so these days, most people who are considering it, the first thing they do is hire a consultant uh, or a lawyer to help them get through the application process because, you know, if you drop the ball on, on your initial application, you'll just get struck out. There are too many applications out there that if you, you're not standing up, if yours doesn't look decent, then you don't have a really a, a hope in hell of actually getting off. And and who, uh, I mean, there's probably not a sort of a typical profile, but what types of people are, are getting involved? Are they, for example, uh, let's say former tobacco farmers or, or someone, you know, uh, someone that's been involved in agriculture that's that's looking for a new cash crop? Yeah, it, it has been, absolutely. Um, there are definitely some people who come from agricultural backgrounds, and truthfully, it makes a lot of sense because they know how to grow plants and uh, do it on a, a large-scale basis. So <clears throat> it's it's smart for them. Other people, uh, you know, uh, Tweed, for example, up in Smith Falls, they bought uh, the old Hershey factory, and they're doing it all indoors, and, and they brought in a, a grower who had experience Um and so you, you have the, the full spectrum of people trying to do this in different ways. I've met other applicant LPs who have bought, uh, purchased um, 
you know, these standalone uh, sort of greenhouses where they can actually control the humidity and the barometer and all that kind of stuff. So if they're growing a strain that was originally from the Himalayas, they can actually replicate the environmental con- conditions of what it would be like in the Himalayas to grow it. So there's a whole bunch of people coming at it from different avenues, from different backgrounds. Uh, a lot of a lot lot more than I expected are coming from a very scientific and, and modern industrial approach to growing it as opposed to, you know, growing it in the ground. Almost all of them are in greenhouses. Uh, not not all of them, but a lot of them are in greenhouses simply because it tends to be lower cost than building it out in, a, in an indoor facility, but it, it's all over the place. And what are the security requirements? I mean, is there a, is there a, a regulation or a manual that lays out how a facility is to be secured? High, you know, the, the, the height of the fence, guard dogs? There is. I haven't read it. I, uh, you know, I'm a busy person and it's a long list of requirements that you have to meet in terms of being able to get a, a license. But I know the, the, the bar is set very high uh, and it's not cheap to comply with it. That's for sure. But you, but you have been out to one of these uh, producers, I'm assuming? or I have, yes. And what, what do you typically see when you go out there? Um, it depends, uh, but there's there's usually a, a screening protocol where you have to check in and they you know confirm your identity and then you walk in and and you're never left alone at least to the extent that you're near the the actual growing plants or the 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 products that have been cut. Um, Otherwise, you know, sometimes they look like farms, as you'd expect. Other times they look like, you know, highly secure facilities where there's passcodes on every single doorway that you have to go through. Um, it, it really depends on the circumstances, but all of them are, are very strict. Health Canada is doing spot checks on, on them all the time to make sure the security pr- protocols are being followed. Uh, and so you're never left alone for very long if you're anywhere close to the actual cannabis. Um, uh, otherwise, there are typically highly clean, very efficient, very, very nice facilities uh, as, as they have to be. And, and how do they make their money? When the marijuana, the medical marijuana goes to the dispensary, wherever that is, for the patient to pick up, do they, they, they don't pay for the services to see the doctor, but do they pay for the actual cannabis? Yeah, so, I mean, you raise an important distinction. So dispensaries in Canada are actually technically with some exceptions, illegal. Uh, So when you do get prescribed, you can't actually go to a dispensary just like a pharmacy. You can, not legally, because they are there, but you shouldn't be under the the MMPR. Um, So when you do get a prescription, what you do is actually you go online or by phone and you register with a licensed producer, uh, and then the licensed producer will ship it to you, uh, to your address, uh, and that's how you get it. And how the licensed producers make money? Well, they sell the, the products just like any other pharmaceutical product. Prices range from $5 typically to $15 per gram. Uh, So it is quite expensive. And and the real challenge, I think, for the industry overall is that unlike most other uh, prescription medicines that will be covered by health insurance plans there, with the exception of very rare cases, medical cannabis is not covered by insurance plans. So if you're paying, you know, $10 a gram and you're using a gram a day, it's $300 a month uh, to kind of keep up with your medicine, which is a significant expense given that most of the people that we're seeing are injured people. And so often they're on some sort of disability benefit because they can't work anymore and they're looking because of the pain that they're in. And so they're looking for relief, but it costs them a lot of money. Well, has any consideration been given to the fact that uh, if someone is um, 
you know, using medical marijuana uh, as, oppo as opposed to, uh, you know, taking their drug card and, and uh, you know, going to the, uh, the pharmacy and getting far more expensive pharmaceuticals, which the government pays for in part, that this could end up, you know, saving the healthcare system in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we haven't done the, run the numbers, but uh, I think all of us internally believe that there's a, a huge cost savings to the government and society as a whole um, from, from medical cannabis, particularly vis-a-vis -vis opioids. <clears throat> One of our medical advisors has come forth and said that even though opioids are the first-line treatment for chronic pain, uh, actually cannabinoids should be first, and there's two reasons for that. One is opioids have a high risk of harm. Yeah, there's addiction, overdose, it happens way too frequently, and it's been shown that opioids after a year or so aren't actually very effective at managing pain. For cannabinoids, um, you, know, you, you don't have as much evidence to show that it is effective, but you also don't have the evidence to show that it's not effective. So it's it's more of an unknown, whereas it's a known non-effective product with opioids. But the point he raises in light of that is like there's, there's a very little harm. There's strong evidence that there's little harm of cannabinoids. And so if you could actually move a lot of those people on, who are addicted to opioids or prevent people from going on opioids in the first place and moving them over to cannabinoids, uh, you could save a ton of money to the health insurance systems. You know, there's a lot of methadone clinics out there trying to help people on, who are addicted to opioids titrate off. If you don't have those people addicted to opioids on, in the first place because they started with cannabinoids, you have a, a huge, huge expense taken off the books of the health insurance plans in each province. Uh, it could be an incredible cost savings just in that category alone, let alone the other ones where the government is subsidizing you know, very expensive pharmaceuticals uh, with something that could be a very, not cheap, but very natural, natural and very affordable product. Are there enough producers to, to fill the demand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> excuse me. From an industry perspective, it's actually one of the challenges, which is because all of the colleges have come out against doctors prescribing medical cannabis because Health Canada has put a high, you know, threshold in terms of who qualifies. Uh, there aren't a lot of patients actually getting on board, not nearly as many, I think, as most people expected, but you have these producers who are ramping up supply. So supply is uh, is far exceeding uh, demand right now, so there's no shortage. When the industry first launched about a year ago, there was a big shortage um, that because it was a plant and you have to you know, grow and harvest a plant and that takes time. Uh, but now that the producers have become more efficient, have had a few cycles of harvest, they have lots of supply. So there's definitely no shortage in Canada for any patients who are looking. But isn't it probably true, uh, we're speculating here, Ronan, that, that yeah. the vast majority of, of people that are smoking for medicinal reasons, or not necessarily smoking, but w whatever, making butter, etc., yep. are self-medicating and going through the black market. If they were to go through proper channels, you would have a huge influx of patients. Absolutely. Um, if they went through the proper channels and they actually met the threshold. So you have a lot of people out there who are self-medicating who, at least right now, given the guidance from the colleges out there, would never actually qualify to receive a prescription because either they have histories of addiction or, or whatever the case may be. And so even if they went to their doctor, their doctor would say, I know you're self-medicating. I know you're smoking street off." Um, 
you know, weed off the street, but I still can't prescribe you because if I prescribe you and something goes wrong, you know, that's my medical license that's out the door. And it just doesn't make sense for me to take that risk. So they give it an addictive personality. They'll put them on opiates rather than cannabinoids. I know. It's, it, it, I mean, obviously they shouldn't be, but it is kind of crazy when you think about that. Absolutely. Sure. Ronan, I wish we had more time, uh, but thank you for uh, giving us some insights into, uh, into the medical marijuana, medical marijuana uh, not only the industry, but um, uh, your end of it, the research and uh, the, the clinics and so forth. It's, it's fascinating, and I, and I applaud your efforts. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, I'm happy to you know, help people become aware of it. There's, uh, there's still a lot of misconceptions out there, and so anything we can do to remove those misconceptions and, and you know, help people find medicine that really helps them, you know, it's, it's, I'm happy to be doing that. Quickly leave us with a website. Uh, yeah, so you can go to cannabiscliniques.ca or canvasrx.com. Uh, CanvasRx has a list of all the strains in Canada and a lot of reviews, and cannabisclinics.ca is just the website for uh, our clinics. You can find out our locations and find out what you have to do to come see our doctors. Thanks very much, Ronan. Thank you very much. The website for this program, richardserrett.com. As always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thank you so much for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, uh, your caravan, your RV, your earbuds, however you're listening in and wherever you're listening in. This is The Conspiracy Show, and it's a program dedicated to searching for truth. We never claim to find it necessarily, but at least we ask the right questions. I like to think so anyway. Uh, We're not doing an HOA this week, but we will start up again next week. Uh, I do want to thank Albert, my um, um, story producer, who's been doing such a great job with the HOAs, working on the show, booking shows, working on the website. Uh, also helping out with the development of the uh, the app, and I'll tell you about that, uh, more about that in, in just a second. And uh, uh, thanks to Tim Spreen, of course, my technical producer, uh, very capable, unflappable, always uh, doing a tremendous job on the, uh, the audio board and answering the phone calls. Eric, the intern, of course, uh, also doing yeoman's duty. I'm so blessed. Uh, to have uh, such a great team working with me here on The Conspiracy Show and uh, also Moses Neimer uh, here at Zoomer, very supportive, and uh, Chris Whitting and the whole team at Syndication Network. The uh, Conspiracy Show app I just mentioned, it's almost ready, and we'll make a formal announcement when you'll actually be able to download the app uh, to your Android or your iPhone or your tablet, and then... You can take The Conspiracy Show wherever you go. It has, I have to tell you, some amazing features. I am blown away by this app. Very excited. I've seen nothing like it. And a special thanks goes out to Sharon Forster, the uh, the app developer. What a great lady, and uh, she's very talented. Uh, you know, I, I look around what's going on in the world, and I hear the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, say things like this, that conspiracy theorists, that would be me and you, I suppose, conspiracy theorists are just as dangerous as ISIS. He actually said that. Now, he seems like a decent enough fellow, Cameron. Uh, For example, I really enjoyed his recent Easter message when he had the courage to uh, stand up and announce that Great Britain is a Christian country. Um, But when the Prime Minister of England, or Great Britain, says conspiracy theorists are just as dangerous as ISIS, I have to wonder how someone so incredibly dim 
can end up at number 10. He can't be that dim. No, I suspect not. Cunning like a wolf, methinks. Uh, the point is, Mr. Cameron is not alone in thinking that conspiracy theorists, non-violent conspiracy theorists, are somehow a threat, just as much a threat as terrorists. A number of members of the U.S. Senate, for example, have said similar things. Janet Napolitano, the former secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the former governor of Arizona, uh, who essentially believes anyone who doesn't agree with President Obama is a right-wing extremist. Anyone who supports the Second Amendment, even though, uh, or I, as I do, even though I'm not an American. Anyone who believes that gold is money. Anyone who believes that gold is money and not the useless Federal Reserve notes. Anyone who stores food reserves or badmouths the government in some kind of way is a, is a homegrown terrorist. What I'm saying is, I, I can't promise you this program, or programs like it, will necessarily survive or be around for much longer. We are living in an age when asking too many questions will get you on a no-fly list, or worse. So listen, enjoy, while you still can. Wow, that's pretty dark and gloomy. Well, forewarned, forearmed. Uh, I have a young woman on the line here in, uh, from here in Toronto. Erin Janice asks a lot of questions. She's a self-described survivor of our public education system. Amen to that. She's a popular blogger, videographer. In fact, many of her videos about food and water, chemtrails, social engineering, human rights have gone viral. Erin Janice, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Wow, you have um, 30,000 subscribers uh, to, your, to your videos and uh, your articles. Tell me a little bit about uh, your, your blog and your, and your online videos. Well, my blog and my online videos are a work in progress, but um, the direction I'm moving towards with it and the inspiration that I have to make my videos um, is a combination of basically a quest for truth that I've embarked upon after being really unsatisfied with my experience in the standard education system growing up and then really kind of let down by the standard health system, our healthcare system, and just socially really unsatisfied and depressed with, with society. And it, I just started to ask the questions, why? Why don't I fit in? Why are people depressed? Why am I depressed? Why are things so off? And I'm still learning and growing, but my online videos and articles aren't, aren't so much something that could fit into mainstream. I tend to talk about a lot of controversial, su controversial subjects, um, from health and wellness to human rights, animal rights, and a lot of the things that are basically hidden from society and not talked about because it either conflicts with the interests of big corporations, big agriculture, or the people and companies who are basically pulling strings and profiting off of our society, staying unaware and unempowered for the most part. And so um, my recent articles are exposing some common New Age misconceptions that I fell into during my quest for truth and just working towards empowering people to take back, to take back their power and to educate themselves and to not simply go through you know, life 
feeling unfulfilled and not knowing why, I encourage people to question things and ask why and realize that there are answers and we can know the truth. Well, Aaron, you've uh, you've arrived at the right place because I like to think we do much the same here on the uh, the Conspiracy Show. Uh, now, I, I do want to delve into uh, some of the misconceptions about New Ageism, and I think you aptly point out there's nothing new about New Ageism. I mean, it's been around for millennia. Um, but before we do that, because I, I know that you uh, you talk a lot about uh, uh, fluoridation in the water, uh, you talk a lot about um, uh, GMOs, uh, chemtrails. Uh, these are you know three areas that that we cover on the program, and I wanted to start uh, with chemtrails with you, and just get your uh, a sense of of where you're coming at this from. Wh- what do you what do you suppose they, and we can discuss who they might be uh, at some point, but what do you suppose they are spraying? Well, from what I've researched and, and what I've learned, I can't identify exactly what it is, but there's enough evidence to say that it's a number of things, and it's not always the same kind of things, but definitely different chemical concoctions, which is why we call them chemtrails. Um, there have been reports based on analysis and appearance by chemists and scientists uh, and people who basically can't speak out in their fields or they'd be shunned and fired, uh, who think that there have been concoctions of of fungal, uh, different types of fungus being sprayed into the atmosphere, uh, molds, um, hazardous waste, um, different chemicals, aerosols, um, and there are many different hypotheses as to why they're spraying and what they're spraying, but there's no question about whether or not it's happening. Um, chemtrails are real, and whether you want to call it geoengineering, the you know modification of our atmosphere, or whether you want to call it poisoning of the population, chemical concoctions are being sprayed over the population, and it's a real issue. And the fact that it's still debated as to whether or not it's even chemicals is... Uh, and hazardous waste is it's scary it's really really scary because um, people don't want to think about it because it doesn't make them feel good and that kind of ties into a lot of the new age misconceptions that I've been recently talking about and people need to take their blinders off and realize that just because something is horrible and awful and you don't want to believe it's true doesn't mean that it isn't true and doesn't mean that you should just close your eyes and 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 you know close off and plug your ears because that's not just making you feel better. That's actually failing our future generations and leaving them to have to clean up the mess and them to deal with the long-term consequences, which we don't even know what those are yet. Well, you're right about, uh, and I uh, indict the the mainstream media, media in particular uh, when it comes to chemtrails. And I always issue the challenge on the air that if uh, if there's a if, if there's a a newspaper person or a a, a broad a news broadcaster out there who wants to win a Pulitzer Prize, they should do. Uh, something on the chemtrail issue because uh, the uh, the fifth estate or the fourth estate, whatever you want to call them, have an, uh, totally abandoned the playing field uh, when it comes to this issue. Uh, people look out the window, they see this strange crisscrossing uh, pattern on in what was a, a beautiful blue uh, sky and within moments it's overcast. Uh, they call the city mm-hmm. desk of the newspaper and... Uh, they get the, the phone slammed down. And I know people call me and they tell me what happens when they call the, the local news station. Uh, they just are not willing to countenance or even consider the possibility that there's something going on up there when the evidence, as you say, uh, is, is overwhelming. When, you have, when you've got 
aluminum and strontium being found in the soil in pristine wilderness areas like Mount Shasta, 10,000, 20,000 times normal levels. I mean, what, what other possibility could there be? Right. And, you know, there's, there's things that people will do to debunk evidence like that and say, oh, that's just runoff from mineral deposits and that's, that's natural aluminum in the soil. Regardless of whether or not certain studies or certain investigations may or may not turn out to be directed, uh, related to chemtrails, the truth is chemtrails are being sprayed and it is affecting water, it is affecting soil, it is affecting the air that we breathe. And um, like you said, you know, people try to inform news stations and they try to get people in positions of authority to speak out about this, but uh, we would be naive to think that that would be allowed or that that could just slip by and, and make it to mainstream media because we have to understand that it's mainstream media is heavily controlled. Most of the really, really popular news stations that won't dare talk about this are owned by companies that are, are huge, huge companies and corporations. A lot of them, you know, we, we think it's the illusion of choice and we think that we're watching a variety of news of popular news stations, but they're all owned by a very small handful of, of, of companies. And the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, um, we don't know what kind of ties that they have to this activity, chemtrails being sprayed, but we know that if it was some terrorist organization doing it, they would never, never get away with it. The security that we have in America and, and around the world is so... It's so it's so high tech that there's no way that it's a mystery to the Central Intelligence Agency and a mystery to big companies and corporations uh, with with high security. There's no mystery about who's doing it or what's going on. So what we have to understand is that whoever's enforcing it and whoever's profiting off of it and whoever wants this to be happening, it's being hidden on purpose. And media stations are probably told and directed not to speak about it because. That's what we see in all situations where, um, you know, big agriculture or big companies and corporations are benefiting from something. You don't hear it being spoken out against on mainstream media. That's the way it's designed. And mainstream media, I, I'm not afraid to say it, most of it is a big, fat distraction. Most of it is a big, fat distraction, and you'll find that people who have been tuning into mainstream media for most of their lives have no idea what's in their food, no idea what's really going on in society no idea how things are working, how their rights are being taken away, how their rights are being violated. They think everything's fine and dandy when it's not. We're living in times of, like, the worst destruction that has ever happened to our rainforests, to our water, to our health, to the air, to our food. And you tune into mainstream media, and you're going to hear some stupid, fluffy story about, you know, the local uh, fundraiser and, and, and the local fire in, in, in Susie Thompson's house. And it's like, get real. You know, there's no transparency in mainstream media, and we need to stop believing that there is. Because if there was, you'd be hearing about the fluoride in the water, you'd be hearing about the, the chemtrails, you'd be hearing about GMOs. There would be no debate about whether or not they, they are happening. The debate would be, why are they happening, what's in them, and what are the long-term effects. All right. Uh, Aaron Janis is with us, activist, online personality, singer, songwriter, over 30,000 subscribers. or videos and articles shed light on topics including fluoridation, uh, human, animal, and environmental rights, spiritual rationality, social engineering, and chemtrails. We'll come back and discuss more with Aaron Janis right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
Uh, we're back with uh, Aaron Janis. Aaron, uh, give us a website. Uh, it's erinjanus.com. All right. So that's E-R-I-N-J-A-N-U-S.com. All right, and we've also linked up to your website at richardserrett.com. Just click on Aaron's name right there on the front page, and that'll take you right there. Uh, so um, the, um, the why uh, in terms of the, of the spraying, I mean, I have my, my theories, um, but why do you think this, you know, we're being rained on with these aluminum uh, particulates, strontium particulates, uh, perhaps even some, you know, nanotechnology that may be involved in there. We can, we can discuss more gallons in a moment if you'd like. But why do you think they, the perps, are doing this? I, I honestly can't say why exactly. I think they're doing it. Uh, but I know that control has something to do with it. Um, I don't know why exactly they may want to control um, or change or modify our atmosphere um, but I know that as, as far as uh, control of the masses and keeping people dumbed down goes, there is so, that is so prevalent in so many ways that I believe that, that that would be a part of it. And, you know, a part of me doesn't really want to say that because I'm worried about what people might think. Oh, that sounds crazy. What she's saying is crazy, but I kind of just have to accept that I'm on your radio show and that your viewers, most of them are not in the debate mode of whether or not it's happening or whether or not there's mind control prevalent in our society. So I just kind of have to let go of that fear of, of just saying what I think is happening because let's get real. Let's look around. There's, there's control and dumbing down of the masses in so many ways today. I don't see why spraying over a population would be, um, you know, a crazy hypothesis as to how to dumb a population down or to just weaken a population in general. Um, if you look at the structure of this society, the powers that be, they, they, they have the real power. And most people, most people on this planet live as slaves. And if we were, if, if the majority of people were healthy, happy, and conscious and aware and able to comprehend and understand what was going on and take control of their lives, society would be very, very, very different. Humankind would not be suffering to the degree that it is. Destruction would not be going on to the degree that it is. And the powers that be would not be in power to the d- degree that they are. Humans would be living... Um, the way that we should be, the way that we have the right to. And, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. Spraying chemicals over a population is a crime against humanity. It's a, it's a crime to all life on Earth. And whoever is responsible, whoever is behind it, is, is, not, is not at all. I, I don't even want to call them human because it's so psychopathic and sick to be doing that that I, I, don't, I don't even know how to comprehend what their agenda is, but I know the okay. control has something to do with it. Well, I, don't, I have no problem uh, you know, believing that there are uh, people who uh, are able to do this, uh, people in high places, and you mentioned you know, psychopath, psychopaths, and, and that's precisely uh, really who is in charge. You have to be, the world is geared in favor of the psychopath. Um, the psychopath rises to the top the way our society is structured. It's by design. If, and you cannot become, um, you know, you cannot be king of the hill unless you are a psychopath, unless you're willing to step on people below you and do whatever, and that includes the current occupant of the White House. 
in order to get that position, you must have psychopathic tendencies. Right, and I don't, I don't remember who this quote is from, but it's something along the lines that it's not power that is what is corrupt, but that it's magnetic to the corruptible. And so within the structure of our society, how it's designed to have, you know, authority figures and, and people in power and people without power, um, it's, yeah, you're right. People who, the psychopaths are drawn to that position. They, from a young age, psychopaths, some, some psychopaths who are born that way, they're drawn to controlling and, and they, they climb their way up and, and that's where we're at and that's what we're dealing with. Right. And, and, and also, I mean, I've, I've been very public about this. I, I happen to be a Christian so, and I believe that, you know, Satan rules this world. That's, that's what the Bible tells us. It, you know, it is, evil exists and that's who's running the show here. So we shouldn't expect uh, anything less, really, from the people who who, who make it to the top. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, shift gears slightly, and this is another uh, huge area of interest for you. It's also uh, very controversial, and that's genetically modified organisms, uh, GMOs. Uh, now, one of the, you know, we may, you and I may have a slight disagreement here. I think that there are, I mean, we have been genetically modifying organisms for thousands of years. Uh, whenever you, you know, you, uh, my father used to graft um, one variety of rose onto another and create, you know, different colored roses. Some people well, do it with fruit that's, trees. That's hybridization. When we, when we cross-pollinate, that's hybridization. But genetic modification, which is going on now, it's something that's quite different from that as hybridization happens in nature uh, has been for you know thousands thousands of years and it's totally natural and normal to hybridize things and for things to sort of cross pollinate and create something new but in order to genetically modify the food the way it's being modified now we're dealing with people in labs taking you know the genome of a pig for Mm -hmm. example and putting it into something like a tomato okay let me ask you though about and i and i agree that there are there are particularly those crops that are that are referred to as roundup ready this is huge this is a huge red flag obviously because we are ingesting uh, these roundup ready plants and uh you know it's it's been found in breast milk and it's it's a huge problem but i find that um it tends to be oversimplified that anything that's GMO is bad. Let me give an example of something, and maybe you can disabuse me of this notion. But I look at something like uh, tiger rice, for example. Now, blindness in uh, children in the developing world is huge because of, you know, they're not getting vitamin A. Uh, So now you have tiger rice, which has been genetically modified. It's producing genetic... The plant is producing vitamin A. And now you have a chance of you know, impeding blindness with children through this genetically modified crop. Obviously, rice is a huge staple in the developing world. How do you feel about something like that? Well, I feel if there's a way to genetically modify something in a safe and effective way to, you know, enhance the vitamin A content of rice, for example, if there's a safe and effective way to do that, I don't see why anyone would be against it. But it's just that Monsanto and the leading companies who are genetically modifying foods they're not transparent 
about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And a lot of the times the studies that we see about its safety or its effectiveness or, you know, uh, how GMOs are not having a bad effect on bees or GMOs are not actually requiring more pesticides when they do, um, they're funded. You know, these, these, the pro-propaganda for, for genetic modification is funded by the companies that are creating the GMOs. And what we're seeing is that when people are eliminating GMOs from their diet, they're, they're having, they're, their health is improving. And another issue is you cannot reuse genetically modified seeds. So it's destroying our heirloom variety of food, which can be reused over and over and over again through generations. And I just, I don't feel safe or comfortable with companies that are tied to so many injustices. A Monsanto, for example, if you just do a 10-minute Google search on, on some of the ties to corruption and just total uh, criminal activity that, that this company has involved itself in and, and the violations towards farmers and the, the, uh, well, the I, environment. I, you'll, you'll forgive me if I have to jump in there and, and throw in a few alleged, 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 because it would be irresponsible of me not to. It's, the criminal activity is alleged. However... And the corruption is alleged. However, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you that there, you know, Monsanto has huge issues in terms of transparency. Whenever we have, I believe, the present food czar in the United States uh, is a is a former Monsanto exec. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's very problematic. Um, now, the Terminator seeds, I don't believe actually have, have come on market. They're, they're, they are researching the idea of a Terminator seed, but I don't believe at present they're available, or am I wrong? Um, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly sure. So I'm the not idea, exactly sure. The, yeah, the idea is that uh, you would, uh, you'd buy a seed, you'd have to buy this, the farmer would have to buy the seed from Monsanto or Dow, which is also into this game now, uh, and, but then that crop would grow and it wouldn't produce seeds. In other words, it's a Terminator so that you would have to keep going back to Monsanto each year. Obviously, uh, typically a farmer would hold back a number of seeds each year so he could replant. But if you're growing their product, you're not able to do that because the plant isn't producing new seeds. That's the idea at some point in the future. I don't think we have Terminator seeds yet. Uh, you know, rue the day when that comes. Uh, oh, but maybe, maybe I should have phrased myself better. Um, the, yeah, there, there is no commercialized Terminator seed from Monsanto Monsanto yet, but the the genetically modified seeds that they that are used, it's with all the pesticides that are required to uh, continue using them. For example, many GMOs require more Roundup or are suggested to use more pesticides right. in their yielding. That that poses issues for uh, for long term successful farming when we're constantly destroying our soil, destroying the content of our soil, and like when people refer to GMOs as Franken Franken food, Franken seeds, I agree. Like I, I simply I don't I don't trust the long term effectiveness of simply genetically modifying our food. I don't trust it. I don't think and I don't think their interests are, are good. I don't think it's for the for the good of the people. And I have yet to find when a multi million dollar company whose goal is profit and who you know, who have just caused so many issues. I, I have yet to find a huge corporation that is in it for the people 
and not for the profit. And when we're dealing with the food that's going to feed millions and that pe- millions are going to rely on and we're dealing with profit, that's so dangerous. Well, that's where the I, GMOs I are, are losing the game in terms of uh, the efficacy. Uh, the, uh, you know, Monsanto's motto was, you know, they're going to, they want to feed the world and, and their the philosophy was that, uh, you know, as the population grows, um, the only way we can feed the world is with GMOs because they they would they are claiming that the yield was so much better than traditional farming methods. But now we're finding out that has not borne out. It's not true. You do not get higher yields with genetically modified organisms or crops. Yeah. Um, so score one for the traditional farmer, I guess. Yeah, um, and there's I I like. The thing is, I don't like to simply jump on board with all conspiracy theories, but something that, that is interesting to consider is there's some literature out there that can be accessed quite easily um, regarding Monsanto having ties or patents on aluminum-resistant genes. And like we were saying before, with aluminum being a, a common uh, thing that would be in most chemical trails, that are that are dumped into our atmosphere. Um, it's interesting that there, you know, there may be ties financially as to why Monsanto may be for genetic modification uh, for for chemtrail spraying uh, something that they can make a genetically modified seed that is resistant to that. That's because true. If we think about the chemicals affecting our soil and depleting things and damaging, you know, damaging how we grow our food. If Monsanto can, and then our natural organic heirloom seeds aren't surviving or thriving, uh, Monsanto can just create something that's resistant to what they've been spraying. Exactly. It's the alkalization of the soil through the aluminum, and and they are producing alkaline-resistant plants that thrive, actually, in that type of soil, whereas, as you say, the heirloom plants do not do well. And so there seems to be a, a cozy connection between chemtrails and uh, GMOs. We'll take a time out. Aaron Janis stays with us. Activist, blogger, videographer, and uh, environmentalist right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Aaron Janis stays with us. Give us that website again, Aaron. It's just AaronJanis.com, and you can also find me on YouTube and Facebook. All right. Uh, let's spend a few moments talking about uh, uh, New Ageism, and uh, you've got that squarely in your sights these days. Uh, what do you mean by, by New Ageism? By New Ageism, I mean the most recent sort of evolution of spirituality, so to speak, that has sort of evolved with the uprise of social media. Uh, there's so many uh, spiritual gurus that we can follow and find online and watch their videos and read their books. And when I first got into exploring the truth about, you know, the food we eat, the fluoride in the water, uh, corruption in society, I was also on somewhat of a spiritual path, um, like many people who pursue truth. Uh, and I fell into what I would call the New Age movement. And it was wonderful. It was amazing. And I would, at the time, a few years ago, I would have considered myself a new ager, being a young girl, just trying to figure things out, looking for my spirituality. And what I've learned is that a large part of the new age movement is basically like a net. It's like a trap. And if you fall into it, it will absolutely greatly um, 
reduce your ability to expand your consciousness, expand your understanding, because there are a lot of half-truths and total delusions within the New Age movement that I believe have been put there via social engineering as another way to stop people from reaching their full potential and their full ability to take back control of our lives and of our humanity and of our society. And what you'll find in the New Age movement here, it's not, I'm not saying that everyone who's involved in New Age and spiritual practices uh, are not in, their, in are not in solid grounds. I'm just saying that there's a lot of there's a lot of crap out there that is simply not true that people run with, and that's what I found. And I try to speak out and raise awareness about that because if I didn't take the time to see past that and have the help of researchers and public speakers such as Mark Passio. I probably never would have reached the level of awareness I'm at now, and I would probably still be trying to change the world with my thoughts and by trying to manifest a better world instead of taking action towards a better world. Okay, give me a a few examples. This is a shorter segment, so just give us a few examples of misconceptions regarding, or traps, as you say, regarding the New Age movement. Red flags. Red flags, a big one, is that there is no truth and that perception is reality, and that there's no real way for us to discover the truth about things, because it's all just too vast. Um, This is flat-out delusional, and although many people believe it, I encourage people to explore that we live in a very personal way. Although we live in a vast universe, we are living in a personal way on this planet, and the things occurring on this planet are very real. So not to get lost in the delusion that it's all just perception and that you know, you create your reality with all of your thoughts. There's some truth to that, but that is in and of itself a trap if you don't have the logic to understand and differentiate between what is meant to be taken in one context and not applied to all things. Another one is what you resist persists. Something that's taught in the New Age movement more and more and more is that we need to stop resisting things, and that resistance is a form of going against the flow of life. Um, And this is just simply untrue. It needs to be called out. People need to understand that we need to resist evil. We need to resist corruption. We need to have positivity and peace in our lives, but there also needs to be a balance. Uh, For example, activists like Martin Luther King, or if you could think of any of your favorite activists who have created great change in the world, it's because they had resistance to something that they were uncomfortable with and something that was unjust. Uh, There's just so much I could say about it, but another, a couple other things is that there is no right and wrong. Yeah, moral relativism. Moral relativism, what a joke, what a joke. Moral relativism in its roots is a satanic view. And when I say that, it doesn't really matter if, if someone believes in Satan or not. Moral relativism is dangerous, and it allows people to create their own versions of what is right and what is wrong based upon their preferences. But the truth is we can define right and wrong actions, moral and immoral actions, and we need to stop believing the confused people who thinks that there is no right and wrong. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. This is a major bugaboo I have. Uh, and, and one of the problems I have with whether you want to call them New Agers who see the divine within or who are out-and-out materialists, uh, as in atheistic, uh, they have no concept of right or wrong because they don't know where it comes from. Uh, and I'm talking about inalienable rights. And if you don't 
believe in a higher authority, a creator, whatever you want to call that your creator, if you don't accept that you get your inalienable rights from the creator, then everything, your rights become privileges bestowed upon you by humans. And they can be given and they can be taken away. And this is a major, major problem we're facing, particularly in this province. Uh, where where people have lost they think if you if you talk to them about driving an automobile oh that's a privilege no it's not it's an uh, the, the the right to transport yourself from one location to another is an inalienable right uh, and it's setting up a huge culture war a generational culture war people who have no concept where right and wrong comes from we'll uh, take a time out Aaron Janis is with us fascinating discussion and we'll do more on the other side the conspiracy show stay with us the truth will set you free But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Aaron Janis is uh, with us, and we're talking about uh, some of the red flags associated with uh, New Ageism. Uh, We have time for a couple more, and then we can can, uh, move on, because you've got so many things to talk about. Okay, so a couple other things that you'll find within the New Age movement that are misconceptions, or you could even call them delusions, is to ignore the negative. Um, And I I do have to credit Mark Passio, researcher and public speaker, for a lot of these points. Um, I discovered a lot of these delusions on my own, but he really solidified and explained that, you know, he, he calls out these things within the New Age movement, and he encourages people to spread the message and spread the awareness, and that's what I'm doing, uh, especially with what I've learned after I considered myself to be a new ager for a while. Uh, another issue is to ignore the negative because people in the new age movement believe that what you focus on grows and that if you put your attention on something that's negative, you're going to give your energy and your power to that thing and it's going to grow like watering a plant. And like I said in my article, I don't know how else to say it, but that is delusional. Like, we need to be able to have the logic and reason to understand that, you know, as far as thought patterns go, if you're always thinking about horrible things, that's going to affect you emotionally, which can have an effect on you physically. But simply by being aware of injustices and horrors in the world, even, that doesn't give power to it. Being an activist and speaking out about it and raising awareness, that doesn't give power to an entity. In fact, it does the opposite. To be aware of what we're up against and to be aware of the injustices going on in the world make it harder for those things to continue because when people are aware and people have good hearts and they care, they do something about it and they demand change. They create change. They put their foot down. And the powers that be and the dark forces that are controlling this planet right now, so many people aren't willing to accept that and they can just go go back to bed and and think about ponies and rainbows. The dark forces that are controlling this world do not want people to think that it's a good idea to talk about what they're doing and expose injustice. They want people to believe that what you focus on, if it's negative, you give power to it, and that's not true. Exactly. Their, Their greatest power over us is despair. When we start to despair uh, and give up and just accept everything, uh, like Howard Beale in Network in that immortal rant when he's talking about, we know things are bad out there, but just leave us alone in our living rooms with our steel-belted tires. Have you ever seen Network, Aaron? 
I have, I have. And, you know, to just paint the positive thing, you know, focus on the on the bright side. When we're looking at, like, injustices on levels that are so horrific, you can't paint it something that it's not unless you're willing to go into a delusional state of mind. Right. You can't look at something horrible and think about it in a positive way. You, can't, you just can't do that. It, it, uh, uh, lack of awareness. It's, it's true. Lack of engagement in the world. Now, I, I don't want to sound like an old f- fogey here, and I know that every generation tends to harangue on the younger one. Uh, but uh, this is something I'm, I've, I've been witnessing uh, teaching part-time at a, at a community college, and that is uh, uh, young people, very smart, very talented, uh, otherwise very capable, uh, walking around with their earbud uh, buds and listening to their uh, their you know their uh, iTunes and so forth. Uh, but that's I mean, never before has there been a generation that has had the world at their fingertips with the technology, and yet at the same time, never have I seen a, dis- a, a generation so disengaged from what's going on all around them. Given the state of the world. Where are the protests? Where are the protest songs from the musical artists? Right. Well, that's just it. We're bombarded with we're bombarded with propaganda and what we see in the media. The thing is, media is raising this generation. I'm 20 years old now, and my generation and the generations being born now are being raised in part by the media. And so, what they see successful people doing and what they See, you know, hear in mainstream music, see in mainstream media. That's that's just how they operate. It's how their brain is being wired because we're introduced to media all the time at such a young age now. Uh, if they don't see activism and awareness as being, you know, what what the norm is and what successful people do, they're not gonna they're not gonna know how to do it. We're not taught in school how to think for ourselves. We're not taught how to think for ourselves at all. We're taught to simply listen to what we're told. And what are we told? What are we told with what we hear coming out of most radio stations, in most newspapers, most magazines, billboards? Not much. Not much of any importance at all. And I, unfortunately, the only reason that I'm aware of things that are going on is because I was so unhappy and I was suffering so much. And I and I saw how things were so, you know... I, Music didn't cut it for me. Putting my earbuds in my ears didn't cut it for me. I went to school and I was unhappy and things were off. I came home and I turned on the TV and I was unhappy and things were off. So I had to get to a point where all I was left to do was either get into addictions like most people do when they're unhappy or question why. And I, and I asked why and why and why. And there are answers. And they're not always pleasant. But pursuing truth is one of the only things we can do to change the world and to make it a better place. And it doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's not scary, but we need to do it if, if we want a better world. Well, you mentioned uh, how many young people fall into some sort of an addiction, and, and Marshall McLuhan, uh, you know, the greatest media mind ever, uh, talked about how technology, and you mentioned social media, which is part of the technology, um, uh, it does a number of things. One, it erases our identity. Two, it takes us out of our body. Uh, you know, we're online now, on average, young people, eight hours a day, eight hours a day in front of an i uh, a tablet or a, a, um, a laptop or an iPhone. Uh, and what happens is the, you know, we, we tend to leave, we leave our body. Our, our minds are out there in the ether. Uh, and then drug taking is, is an attempt for us to get back into our body. So there's a, I think there's a connection between uh, the rapidity of uh, the development of technology and drug use. 
Yeah, and not only that, but, you know, drug use and addictions of all kinds. Addictions that are not necessarily drugs, but uh, addictions to certain distractions and just addictions that lead to an unfulfilling life. A lot of it stems from people, you know, you'll, you'll talk to a lot of people who are simply depressed and unhappy. They feel like something's missing or they know that something is wrong or they think the world sucks. And it's like I encourage people to not suppress that with, you know, whatever your habits are that help fill that void or make you feel better. Question why and why and why and ask questions. And if you don't go crazy learning the truth in the process, you're likely to be empowered. You're like to, likely to be empowered with knowledge and realize that you're a human being with the ability to affect real change in the world. And there are so many issues that need attention and pick one and you're set for life. Like there are so many battles that need to be fought here. And people, I just encourage people to, to question things more often and search for the truth. And that's the danger. That's the danger that I'm trying to raise awareness with about the new age movement now. Because you, you ask the questions, and there, and there's the answers, but they're not always true. So we need to keep using our minds and using our logic and reason and try to understand, you know, things from a, from a very logical perspective. You're 20 years old, did you say, Aaron? Yeah. 20. Wow. What do you, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? Well, I'm really, I really love... I really love music and I really love to play music and sing and it's a great it's a great outlet for me aside from from my direct activism and writing so within 10 years I I hope to be doing public speaking as well as performing music and and writing and I I'm really into the arts so that's where I'll be and uh, in terms of activism do you have any political aspirations I do, I do, but I, I don't want to act like I'm not guilty of the fear because I've seen and I've watched what happens to a lot of people who gain a following and are in the spotlight, whether they're celebrities, either locally or globally. They speak out about stuff and they either get silenced or they get killed. So I'm trying to take things slow and I'm going to do whatever I can to uh, raise awareness about the issues that we've spoken about today from human rights, environmental rights, and, and even animal rights, that's a, that's a big thing for me as well. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to go about it, but I'll use whatever medium I can to raise awareness. But have you, have you considered the idea that, that uh, politics is the last place uh, one would venture into if they were interested in making a difference? Uh, I don't know. It really, it really depends on a number of things. I mean, I, I guess I've... Uh, uh, I'm, I've become quite cynical in that regard. I consider myself to be a political atheist. I do have uh, uh, political philosophies and I, I, am, I have ideology, but I do not subscribe to you know, the parliamentary system or political systems. I just I think it's, it's rigged. I think what we have, are th- we have a one-party system. We have three leaders that are all vying to be the CEO of the corporation. Oh, yeah. And I mean, as, as far as that goes, I, for anyone who still votes, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, what I, when I think about voting and when I think about looking up to politicians and people within government, uh, you know, as, as, as individuals who can affect change within that platform, it's really difficult for me. You know, voting, it's like, it's like giving a, a PlayStation controller 
to a toddler with no batteries in it and they think they're doing something. They think they have a say. That's an excellent analogy. Listen, I, I wish we had more time, Aaron. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. I hope you'll stay in touch and uh, we'll, we'll have you on again sometime. Great. Okay. Sorry, the time flew by. I didn't know it. we already up at an hour. So. It, al- it always does. It's AaronJanus.com. E-R-I-N-J-A-N-U-S. AaronJanus.com. And uh, and good luck to you, and keep uh, keep up the good fight. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. My pleasure. Aaron Janis. Uh, that's it for us. Another night has come and gone. My thanks, of course, to uh, Tim Spreen, Albert and Eric, the interns, all of you listening at home. And uh, don't forget uh, the website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Back with a brand-new program next week. Hope you'll be on board. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.